everyone, how are you doing? Welcome back to our podcast on the Gospel of John. Today we are going to talk about John chapter 7, verse 53 to chapter 8, verse 11. Now for today's podcast, uh, it might uh, sound a bit different from the rest of the podcast because uh, due to the nature of the passage, I'll be actually talking quite a bit about manuscripts and how we got the Bible as we have it today. But nevertheless, we'll be doing a short reflection on the passage itself after that. Now, before we begin the podcast, let us uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Lord our God, today we are going to look at a rather peculiar passage found in the Gospel of John. So Lord, uh, may you guide our hearts as we look at this passage and may you use whatever that shall be spoken and that shall be listened to for your purpose and for your glory. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're going to talk about John chapter 7, verse 53 to 8, 11. Let me read it once through. John chapter 7, verse 53 says this, They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to him, to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. Now this passage is quite peculiar because nowhere else within the Gospel of John will you see any other passages with the footnote. The earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 7 verse 53 to chapter 8 verse 11. Now, uh, if you have your Bibles with you, you can go and check it out and see if you have this footnote on this passage. And uh, for the other Gospels, the only other passage with such a footnote is actually found in Mark chapter 16, verses 9 to 20. And some of your Bible translations, you might discover that you don't even have uh, John chapter 7, verse 53 to John chapter 8, verse 11. Uh, after John chapter 7, verse 52, it just skipped right through to John chapter 8, verse 12. Now, why is this so? And what does this footnote actually mean? Is it a big deal or something we can ignore? Now, to understand what this uh, footnote means, we need to know what is a manuscript, in particular, a biblical manuscript. Now, a manuscript, 
uh, is any handwritten copy of a portion of the text, right, of the Bible. Biblical manuscripts, they vary in sizes, right? They can, they can uh, be tiny scrolls to huge, multilingual books that contain both the Old and the New Testaments. Now, over the course of time, the people of God, they discovered and they recopied these manuscripts. And these manuscripts, uh, as they're being recopied, they get passed from generations to generations. And as they have been discovered, they were being studied and they considered also under strict criteria, such as whether the writing can be traced back to being written by a prophet or an apostle, as well as also they uh, look at the consistency of the entire message in the Bible to ensure that those that fulfill this criteria can be part of the Bible we have today. And this whole process is actually a very tedious process. It's called canonization, right? A term which some of you might have come across. Now, according to Bible archaeologists, to date, there are over 5,800 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament with 2.6 million pages of biblical text. Now, that is really a huge amount of text to work with. Now, while some of these manuscripts, they are small and they are fragmentary, the average size of a New Testament manuscript is actually 450 pages long. And if you compare it with other ancient texts, no other ancient text can actually compare to this with the sheer volume of manuscripts to back up, to back up um, the events, the, the, the writings of uh, biblical times. Right? And no other ancient text can also be compared when we consider how close the earliest manuscripts are to the originals. Now, how the manuscripts were copied and recopied and hence passed through the generations, it was actually nothing short of uh, amazing. Because up to today, scholars are certain that 99% of what we have in the New Testament is actually perfectly copied from the earliest manuscripts. The rest of the 1% they've discovered are copying errors pertaining to spelling errors or the loss of a single word. Now, that is really a high rate of proficiency, right? Now, contrary to what was suggested by Dan Brown, you have read his books, who wrote the Da Vinci Code, the books of the Bible were actually not determined by any single authority at any one time. It definitely wasn't a conspiracy by the church to include some books and then to exclude others so that they can have a control of power. Now, if you think with me, if it was indeed so, if indeed the church want to just control power for themselves, then they would not have included the Sermon on the Mount. They will also not have portrayed Jesus as the one who came to serve and not to be served, right? Rather, there is evidence that points to many church leaders, pastors, theologians, um, they got together at various points of history throughout many generations to study, to debate, to pray over which books belonged right, to the canon of the Bible and which does not. Now, if you have finished reading the Bible at least once, 
you might have discovered the amazing consistency of the books of the Bible, right? According to the biblical message. And amazing, it's amazing because the Bible actually contains books which spans authorship across 1,500 years and by 40 authors. Now, all along, I believe that the Holy Spirit was really at work to enable so many faithful servants to compile and to put together the Bible we have today, and we really praise the Lord for them. So this whole process of including books in the Bible, it took place over the course of hundreds of years. And it was in approximately 200 to 100 BC that there was an agreement on the list of the 39 Old Testament books. And after which, it was only in 393 AD, nearly 400 years after the time of Christ, where a council called the Council of Hippo that finally um, finalized a list of the 27 books of the New Testament, right, which we are using in our Bible today. Now that being explained, um, so um, to say that the earliest manuscripts do not include John 7:53 to 8:11 means that there are no evidence or whatsoever to suggest that such a text actually comes from the Apostle John himself. So where does it come from? Right? It could have been inserted later <clears throat> by the Christian scribe, but today, today it cannot be sufficiently attributed to the writings of the Apostle. Now, according to a scholar um, by the name of Chris Keith, the first manuscript to contain the story is actually from around 480. And around 4% of Greek manuscripts that include the passage place it in locations um, other than uh, John 7.53 to 8.11. And the earliest of this is actually from around 9th and 10th centuries AD. And he mentioned that the majority of scholars believe that a later Christian scribe inserted this passage into John's Gospel and that the alternate locations are due to the effects of later liturgical reading in what is known as the lectionary system. Now in that case, we can at most conclude that this passage might be historically accurate, but who or where did it come from? I'm not sure. Right? We do not know, really. So given such a context to John 7.53 to 8.11, how then can we handle such a passage? Now, if we read the passage, we know that there is really nothing contradictory to the rest of the message of the Bible. Uh, it seems to echo similar passages which talk about how the Pharisees sought to test Jesus and probably to see him stumble. Yet time and again, not only did Jesus not stumble, but managed to use the test or a tricky situation to reveal more about who God is, uh, what is the kingdom of God all about, and why Jesus has come into this world. Therefore, it is my personal conviction that even um, that with the uncertainty of the source, of John 7:53 to 8:11, it might not be wise to try to extract biblical principles from the passage, especially if we are trying to do so in the context of other passages in the Gospel of John, which we know um, is uh, truly from the apostle. Now, some other preachers 
they might have a different take on this. But and uh, I suggest that you listen to their views as well and you decide for yourselves, right? But as for me, what I'm trying to propose is that we can try to link this passage with other similar passages in the Gospel of John, which we know are written by the Apostle. Um, then we discuss the biblical principles from these other passages, and we use John 7.53 to 8.11 as a reinforcement, as a reinforcing narrative. Okay, let me illustrate to you what I mean by this. Uh, I'm going to use John chapter 5, verse 1 to 17, um, which we know that is from the Apostle John, right, through the manuscripts. And it talks about Jesus' healing of the man who was invalid for 38 years, right? You would have read about this. Uh, but let me read this passage for the benefit of those who might be listening to this podcast without the Bible in your hand. So John chapter 5 verse 1 to 17 says that, you know, after this, there was this feast of the Jews and Jesus, he went up to Jerusalem and there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic is called Bethesda, which has actually five roofed colonnades. And in this pool actually lay a multitude of invalids, meaning that they are blind, uh, lame or paralyzed. And one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years and that's a long time and when Jesus saw him lying there and he knew he knew that he had already been there for a long time and he said to this invalid do you want to be healed then the sick man actually answered him sir I have actually no one you know I want to be healed but I have no one to put me into the pool when the water was being stirred up right so Jesus said to him get up take up your bed and walk you know, you don't have to go into the pool. Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once, you know, when the man started to do this, he was healed. He took up his bed and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So, of course, the Jews um, said to the man who had been healed and they said to him that, you know, this is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But the man answered them. He said that the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is this man who said to you? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was at first because Jesus, he had withdrawn because there was a crowd coming into the place. And then afterward, after some time, Jesus actually found the, um, the, the healed man to be in the temple and he said to him, see, you are well, sin no more then nothing worse may happen to you. Then a man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Okay? So there are many things that we can learn from this uh, very interesting passage, very intriguing. Now, one of the things that we can really reflect upon, and which is quite a recurring theme in the Gospel of John, is about this relationship between personal sin and physical sickness or ailments. Now, in John chapter 5, the man's physical ailment was actually caused by his personal sinfulness. Why do we know about this? Because in verse 14, Jesus told the man that even though he was healed, he should not what? Yes, he should not continue to sin, right? So while this is an example of the possible relationship between personal sin and sickness, it is not to be considered as a principle is not to be considered as a general truth. 
it cannot be applied to all situations because there are places in the gospel where Jesus drew a distinction between sickness and sin. In fact, this can be found just four chapters later in John chapter 9, right? If you read verses 1 to 3, it says that as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So Jesus said it clearly. It wasn't because of the man's sin or the parents' sin that caused him to be blind. Now here it actually isn't very clear, right? Why the man was born blind. Uh, because grammatically, uh, in the Greek, Jesus' comment about the works of God actually can be a separate issue from why uh, the man was blind. Nevertheless, that's for a separate occasion. Um, then, then, no less, God's glory was manifested, if you read further, when Jesus actually healed the man of his blindness. Now, how does such a passage give us biblical principles that we can follow? Now, one biblical principle we can have is that although personal sin and sickness it can be related, it is not always the case. Therefore, when we pray or when we minister to people, we must not be like the Pharisees who judged everyone sick to be seen in sin. And even if a person is sick because of sin, we are called to follow Jesus' example, who had compassion on those who are sick because of sin and those who are sick not caused by sin. So going back to John chapter 5, even though Jesus knew that the person was invalid because of his sin, he did not condemn the person. He healed him and asked him to sin no more so that nothing worse might happen. So we learn here that Jesus' response to one whose sin was of what? Of mercy, right? Of mercy, love and restoration. And even as Jesus healed his physical sickness, Jesus loved him enough to also speak the truth in love, asking him to sin no more. And this sort of lay like a, a template for us to follow when we minister to people, right? Um, our, our approach to a person who sinned must be of mercy, must be of love and restoration. And even as we do so, we also ought to love the person enough to speak the truth in love and be courageous enough to ask the person to sin no more if we indeed discern that the, the person is um, uh, going through certain kind of sickness because of his sin. Now, this was actually in contrast. Such an approach was actually in contrast to the Pharisees, you know, who knew so much about the scriptures. But they have actually very little love for the people they were supposed to shepherd. To them, being the invalid, being the man born blind, you know, uh, they were sinners, unworthy to be fellowship with, and did not really care about their spiritual well-being, as like Jesus our Lord. So similarly, if now we turn our attention to the passage of the day, John seven fifty-three to eight eleven. Um, you can see a similar pattern. The Pharisees were more interested, right, of making use of these adulterers. 
that's what they call her, to test Jesus, then showing mercy and love. But then Jesus gloriously turned the whole situation around and even managed to offer to the lady forgiveness and hope and also ask her to sin no more. Yes, the lady who committed adultery had sinned, but unlike the invalid in John 5, was treated with dignity and love by the Messiah. And this passage is really quite consistent, right? With quite a few passages, you know, two that we have discussed in the Gospel of John that shows us really the heart of God for you and me. He showed mercy and restoration for those who sin, and we as his followers ought to follow in his steps. And my friends, if you know of someone today who has sinned or have sinned against you, the question for us is this, will we be like Jesus, right? To forgive and show mercy to this person. Will we seek to restore this person if the opportunity presents itself to be so? And we recognize that sometimes, you know, especially if uh, this person is sinning against us, it's uh, really challenging to do so. But through Jesus' example, I think we can strive to be uh, a person who forgives. And through these passages which we have studied, I believe the Lord's message for us today is to really search our hearts and ask ourselves the following questions. Question number one. Are there times when we judge others like the Pharisees, condemning them of their sin and even avoiding fellowship with them? If so, what is God telling us to do today? Question number two. Christ our Lord has shown himself to be merciful and yet speak the truth in love. He cares so much for our spiritual well-being that he was willing to even die on the cross for our sins. So how have we, as a people of God, followed in his footsteps? How have we shown mercy and truth to the people around us? My friends, as we ponder upon these questions, I pray that May the Lord continue His grace and strength upon you, even as we study and converse with Him through His Holy Word. Amen. So, may you take care, and we will catch up again at the next podcast. See you again. Bye-bye.